Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. As we turn our attention, as we are coming to the end of the Gospel of Luke, we've come to chapter 23, and the trial of Jesus. As we began a series of trials, there are six of them, three that were religious, before Annas, Caiaphas, the religious rulers, and now three that are Roman before the government. We're doing here on Sunday morning what we could never do in an Easter morning message. We're methodically going through the last 24 hours of the life of Jesus. And I want you to think about what Christine was singing. The name of Jesus. As Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate, Pilatus, you have God and you have his creation. You have God incarnate in human flesh, Emmanuel who dwelt with us, and you have a created being made in the image of God. You have creator and creation. The trials of Jesus are really God's stamp of approval on the sacrifice that his son would make. Because Pilate is going to declare the total and complete innocence of Jesus and yet sentence him to death anyway. Would you join me and let's pray? And we'll take the first 25 verses here in chapter 23 and the political trials of Jesus. Father, we we come. Lord, I come. I stand amazed, Jesus at what you endured for me. And I pray for us as your church that we would not skip over these verses but allow them to speak to us. Lord, they form part of the Easter message, the Passion Week message. But truly, Lord, it was us. We put you on trial. We are the all-we-like sheep that have gone astray. We've made our accusations against you. Lord, we pray that you'd speak to your church and encourage us, strengthen us, Lord, in our faith. Help us to understand what you endured on our behalf. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. 
First, we see Pilate's political dilemma. And then verse 1, the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. Pontius Pilatus, known by just a single name, Pilatus. There's a stone that rests in Caesarea Maritima on the coast discovered in 1963 that actually gives the name of the proconsul of the region of Galilee. The one that's there is actually a copy. The real one is in the Israeli National Museum. The pilot was a real person, and he was really the governor of Judea in AD 32-33. And he was a well-connected political person. He had extremely high connections in Rome. In fact, he was married to Claudia Procula, who was the granddaughter of the great Caesar Augustus. Caesar Tiberius is now the emperor, the Caesar at the time. And as was true and as is true in our world today, very often Political people are well-connected. They have the inside track. Pilate could do as he pleased. He had the backing of the world's ruling superpower. He had unbridled authority. He could do anything and everything he wanted. And he was about to use that power in an unimaginable way to condemn an innocent man, even though he would find him innocent. And no doubt Pilate was kept well abreast of what was going on. According to John's gospel, this Roman detachment that had come to arrest Jesus was a cohort. It was 600. It was a tenth of a legion, and it was led by a tribune. We're used to seeing centurions. They're found a number of times. There'll be one at the cross, the ruler of a hundred. But here, Jesus is being treated as if he's some super criminal. You don't send 600 well-armed soldiers and what would amount to at least a full bird colonel to arrest a Galilean peasant. There was something else going on. And in fact, as Pilate entertains this trial, the tribune is actually the only person that's of his social class that's in the picture. This is a very high-profile political scene. It was done for political purposes, and it had nothing to do with the guilt or the innocence of the man who was on trial. It had everything to do with politics. And I want you to see how Jesus responds to earth's politics. What does Jesus do in the face of a false accusation by political rulers? Pilate could have simply backed out of this scene. He could have kept all of his options open. He could have done 
absolutely anything he wanted to do. But there was political motivation involved. Pilate wanted to maintain his authority and control. And in order to do that, he plays to the masses of the Jews. He was no friend to the Jewish people. He belittled and hated them. But as is often the case when things turn political, enemies of a common mind often become friends. Notice first the lethal lie. Verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying, He himself is Christ, a king. Church, is that true? It absolutely is not. In fact, Jesus taught exactly 100% the opposite. He, in fact, said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God the things that are God's. Never once did Jesus even mention seditionist things. Never was he an insurrectionist. Never did he practice civil disobedience. Never did Jesus encourage the disciples to get involved in politics. Jesus never ever got engaged in political affairs. He stayed completely out of it. Why? Because government is established by God, but it is for a civil purpose. It is chiefly for the concept of both law and order and the punishing of evil. And so Jesus here in the midst of a political situation, is lied about. And then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, say, said, It is as you say. In other words, a positive affirmation. He says, Yes, I am. And so Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowd, Here it comes, first of three times, I find no fault In this man. He was accused of sedition. He's brought before Pilate. There's a political accusation made against him about which Jesus is absolutely innocent, and Pilate knows it. I find no fault in this man. But they, who's the they? That would be Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, the religious crowd, the people who gathered with them. You could even go so far as to say part of the religious ruling class. People with religious motivation who are also the same people that Jesus openly condemns throughout the New Testament. The religious legalists. The people who had an opinion about everything, but rarely spoke the truth. They were more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. 
Can I remind you, there's absolutely nothing illegal about Jesus teaching in the region of Galilee. And in fact, the people that are making the accusation did exactly the same thing. That's what they did. And in fact, they were stirring up the people, and that's why they're standing in front of Pilate in the first place. You're going to find very often in life that those with the political motivation call out those who are actually standing for the Lord. They have something to say about everything, but they rarely have anything to say about the truth. Notice how this lie goes. They're saying, look, he's perverting the nation. If you wanted to have someone killed in the Roman world, that is the one charge that will get it done almost every time. The charge of insurrection or sedition against Rome. There were things you could do in the Roman world and you wouldn't even be touched. But if you came against Rome itself, that was a capital offense. It normally resulted in your death. They ruled with an iron hand. And so that's the accusation. But notice what Pilate says. He didn't do it. Isn't true. It's not preaching sedition. He wasn't teaching against Rome. He wasn't encouraging people to flee the Roman government. He wasn't saying, fight for your rights against Rome. He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Caesar has a place in this world. It's not the top, by the way. That belongs to the Lord. But what did Jesus actually say? What did he actually do? You see, the Caesars were unbelievably corrupt and unbelievably powerful. And so if you wanted to stay in their good graces, all you needed to do was submit. Don't make waves. Typically, they would leave you alone. Pilate knew that the Jews of the diaspora had gone to all kinds of different places and they were beginning to come back into the region. And the Jews hated Rome for all that they stood for. And imagine, as Jesus is saying he's king, the records to prove that were about 200 yards away in the temple. Interesting what the Gospels actually record Luke's gospel in chapter 2 records for us that he was of the tribe and of the lineage of David, the kingly line. So Jesus was saying, yes, I literally am the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. That's actually truth. He wasn't making a slight against Rome. He was simply saying, as far as the Jewish people are concerned... I am their king. And he spoke truth. And he didn't speak against Rome. I am the Jewish king. Remember who brought him there. 
Annas, Caiaphas, and the religious rulers of the Jews. That's why he says it is as you say. Luke 2, 4 gives us that picture of the house of David Jesus was. That's why one of the great miracles of the Bible, Mary and Joseph are going to Bethlehem to be, say it, taxed. It was tax time. We just went through tax time, amen? Anybody like that? They didn't like it then either. Actually, if you travel to Israel, you know, we call the Western Wall, the Hawk Hotel, we call it the Wailing Wall. The Jewish people actually call that the IRS. That's where they go to wail. Nobody likes paying taxes, but you went to the city of your parents' birth to be registered. Where was that for Jesus? It was not Nazareth. That's where he lived. It was Bethlehem, the house of bread, the city and birthplace of the great King David. Because he was of the tribe and of the lineage of David. Pilate's puzzled. Because nothing about Jesus says king. He didn't have an entourage. He wasn't wearing kingly garments. He didn't come with royal splendor. He wasn't carrying a scepter. There was nothing kingly about Jesus. Jesus simply made reference to, it is as you say, I am the rightful heir to the throne of David. And he was. So Pilate should have said, case dismissed. The outcome is clear. The reason you brought this man. And church, this is so important for us. Because if Jesus is not totally innocent, if Jesus had done anything to warrant his death, then he did not pay the price for your sins on Calvary's cross. But if he is the spotless, perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and in his perfection died in your place, then your sins are forgiven. Hallelujah. These details are here for a reason. So that we would know that Jesus was perfectly innocent. That's why there are six trials. And every single time, the outcome's the same. Innocent, innocent, innocent. He stirs up the people, is the accusation, teaching all throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee. Not only was this not true, wherever Jesus went, he actually tended to the needs of the people. He didn't stir anybody up against Rome. It's one of the things that boggles my mind in our world today. It's like how the church got moved so far from preaching the gospel to preaching against Rome. When Jesus didn't do it, 
And none of the disciples did it either. He taught about his father's kingdom. The kingdom to come. He never told anyone to overthrow Rome. That's our Jesus. He was Messiah on a mission. So Pilate next sees a legal loophole. Notice verse 6. And when Pilate heard of Galilee, and it's not like that was the first time he'd heard of Galilee, he goes, oh, Galilee, perfect, I can get rid of this. Isn't this exactly how politics works? Not my jurisdiction, man. It's not in my congressional district. Doesn't affect the people that I am ministering to, the people that I work for. We'll send it somewhere else. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. Isn't this just exactly how the world still works? Like, I don't have to deal with this. See ya. Sending you off to Herod. Now, this is Herod Antipas, one of the three remaining sons of Herod the Great. Archelaus and Philip are the two others. They served as tetrarchs, ruler of a quarter. This particular Herod, Herod Antipas, had his headquarters in Tiberia, which is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Another one of our stops when we're in Israel. This is the place where the Romans ruled the region of Galilee. The Via Maris, the way of the sea, goes right along the edge of the shore of Galilee. It's where you collected taxes. It's the reason that tax collectors like Matthew were called publicans. They were actually employed by the Roman government to collect taxes, and they got to keep a portion of what they collected. So it's a racket. It's well-connected just as our political world is well-connected. It's who you knew. It's not what you could do. Had nothing to do with whether you were gifted or called or anything else. It's just if you knew the right people, you were in. Herod happens to be in Jerusalem. Maybe they're convening a meeting, getting together. Pilate sees the loophole. Who was also in Jerusalem at the time, and now Herod saw Jesus, and he was exceedingly glad. Does that strike you as weird? Remember who this is. This is the same Herod who put to death John the Baptist. He was fascinated by miracles. And in fact, he thought that John the Baptist and Jesus may have been the same person. And so he's, I get to see Jesus. This is going to be awesome. This is like must-see TV. He's going he's to come in, and this is going to be like you know one of those shows to where one of the great mystics of the world, you know, manages to put himself in, it's, it's, a, it's like a trick. This will be great. I'll get everybody inside the hall here and we'll bring out Jesus and he'll do some miracle and we'll like, yay. For he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and hoped to see some miracle done by him. So I was not taking artistic license. That's exactly what it says. He's thinking, this is going to be great. Haven't seen any miracles done this week. Bring him on. And then he questioned him with many words. 
But he, that would be Jesus, answered him, that would be Herod Antipas, nothing. And the chief priest and the scribe stood and vehemently accused him. Can you imagine this court scene for a moment going on in our world today? You're in the court. The prosecuting attorney, the defense attorneys have made their case. The judge is hearing the information. The the jury's been seated. And all of a sudden, the gallery erupts. The people in the courtroom, he's guilty, I saw him. What is the duty of the judge in that moment? To either silence the critics or to declare a mistrial. You can't allow those kind of things to go. And this shouldn't have happened in Herod's court either. For all of their faults, the Romans were meticulous about the law. What they did, they did well. Why? Because they were very well connected. They didn't want anything to bring shame to them. They stood. They actually got up. You didn't do that in the face of Roman leadership. You sat. They're here. You're here. This whole scene's off the charts crazy. And then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe. We know because the other gospel authors tell us it was purple and sent him back to Pilate. Notice what Jesus is found guilty of. Absolutely nothing. And in fact, he's mistreated. Judicial protocol is broken. Jurisprudence has failed him. Things are allowed in that courtroom that shouldn't be allowed ever and wouldn't be allowed. On that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other for they previously had been at enmity or at war with each other. You see what's going on here? This whole thing is a setup. It has nothing to do with seeking the truth. It has everything to do with getting done what they politically believe is expedient. Notice how this all unfolds. They hauled Jesus to Herod Antipas. This man is weak, he's wicked. He's debauched, and the only thing he's interested in is how much entertainment he can get out of this with Jesus. But notice he never actually even makes an accusation against Jesus. He doesn't even accuse him of a crime. The galleries erupted, the crowds erupted, which he should have put down, but he doesn't even do that. Interesting. Because Jesus had previously spoken about Herod when he killed off his cousin, John the Baptist. There's an old axiom that probably many of you know, and the enemy of my enemy is my friend. 
while that statement's not found in the Bible, its equivalent is right here. Actually comes from a Sanskrit book that was written in about 4th century B.C. But it's interesting how when people agree on something, even if it's a lie, they might have previously been enemies about other things, but the moment there is an agreement about some major issue, somehow they become friends. They unite over a common enemy. In this case, it was Jesus. There's no neutrality. Church, there is no neutrality with Jesus. You are either for him or you are against him, exactly as Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 12. He's either Savior and Lord or he is nothing to you because he didn't come to be anything else. You don't get to pick and choose how much of Jesus you want in your life. Lord does not mean he kind of, sort of is in your life so long as you agree with what he's doing. Lord means he is master. There is no neutrality with Jesus. Why do I say that? Because Pilate and Herod are attempting to have neutrality with Jesus. They don't want him causing problems, but they also do not want to call him Savior and Lord. And so they're trying to, well, we'll just kind of let it be. You can't just let it be with Jesus. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to them who believe. But it is absolutely nothing to the person who does not believe. Knowing about Jesus is not believing in Jesus. Knowing about Jesus might be the reason that you're actually condemned. Jesus is saying, I'm either Savior and Lord, or I am nothing to you. Because he didn't come to be a political pawn. He didn't come to be a governing ruler. He didn't come to tear down Rome. He didn't come, in essence, to Christianize Rome. Rome would only be Christianized if Rome became Christians. Jesus knew that. So Jesus spent zero time in the realm of politics. He dismissed it out of hand. He mentions, he says nothing You think if Jesus wanted to say something about politics, he couldn't have done it right here in this passage? Well, you know, aren't you related to Caesar Augustus and Caesar Tiberius? Wasn't your father, didn't he die of some dreaded disease because he failed to yield to the Lord? There's all kinds of things Jesus could have said, but he didn't. Pretty important that we understand that. Because this is one of those places, if Jesus wanted to have a political voice, he's standing in front of the most powerful people in the region, and he says nothing, zero. 
maybe we can learn some things from Jesus, you think? Notice Pilate's personal dilemma. Verse 13, and then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, so you have the chief priests, so that's the high priest and his son-in-law, the rulers, that's the Sanhedrin, and the people. So you've got three different groups here. They all are on the same mission. And said to them, you've brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in him. Innocent verdict number six. He hasn't said a thing against Rome. He hasn't said a thing against Pilate. He hasn't said a thing against Herod. He hasn't dismissed Caesar. He hasn't encouraged people not to wear taxes. He hasn't told people to throw away their masks. Just saying. See it for what it is. Jesus wanted to speak out about these things. Here's the perfect opportunity, and he says nothing. Jesus could have said, yeah, you guys are a bunch of rotten scum. And we're not paying taxes anymore. We're all going to quit. We're all going to do our own thing. Concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod. For I sent him back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. Well done, Pilate. Spoken like a true Roman. We let the law run its course. He's innocent. This is Pilate who had marched his men on to the very temple mount. By this time, as Josephus records it, there were actually Roman eagle standards hanging from the very walls on which the shofars were blown by the watchmen. What was supposed to be a holy place had been turned into, a, in essence, a Roman encampment. The Antonia Fortress just outside the, the Temple Mount itself on the north side. The courtyard in which this occurs, we travel to as we walk down the Via Dolorosa, the Way of Tears. This place where Jesus will soon be beaten. This place where Pilate lived in luxury while the people suffered. Pilate could have turned his troops on these guys. Herod could have done the same thing. But Herod and Pilate agreed. Jesus was innocent. They were always up for a good crucifixion. It's like, this will teach people to follow us and not have any dissent. Notice how the Roman justice system is distorted. Verse 16. 
I will therefore chastise him and release him. Now, I want you to notice something. This is completely illegal. Out of his own mouth, Jesus has been declared innocent. He says, just to keep you guys happy for political expediency, for political reasons, for political speech, well, I'll just beat him and then I'll let him go. For it was necessary for him to release one of them at the feast, at the feast of Passover. That was a tradition. The Romans knew exactly how to keep power. They kept throwing little tidbits out to people. It's like, well, we'll let one of your guys go. And they all cried out at once, saying, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Now, have you heard anything there where Pilate changed his mind? He did not. He's still declaring that Jesus is innocent, but he's going to beat him anyway. He's going to flog him. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion. That's called sedition, folks. Insurrection. In other words, Barabbas is actually guilty of the things that Jesus is being accused of. He is literally guilty. Made in that city and for murder. And Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, there it is. Again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. As we wrap up this part of the Passion Week narrative, what a perversion of justice this is. This is as bad as it gets. This is a knowingly innocent man who is about to be beaten, put underneath the Roman lash. We call it the cat of nine tails. A, prof- a person that was a professional called a lictor would take that flagellum, leather straps, iron, sometimes lead balls, chunks of glass, and literally beat somebody until very often they died from the beating. The word that's used here, that's what they're going to do to Jesus. Well, we'll just beat him until he's almost dead. That should make everybody happy. Release to us Jesus Barabbas' origin of Alexandria would refer to Barabbas. The other Jesus, in other words. Oh, we want Jesus, just not the Jesus that's the real Jesus. We want the Jesus of our own making. Church, listen to this. They wanted the Jesus of their own making. We want the political insurrectionist Jesus. We want the one who's going to tear down Rome. We want the one who's going to stand in the street corners and say, rise up against Rome. They wanted their own Jesus. That is a fatal flaw in anyone's theology. There is one Jesus, God's own son, the sinless lamb who died to take away the sins of the world not a political activist. Pilate was willing to let him go. But that wasn't what the mob wanted. 
And so we see Roman justice denied at this point. Verse 22 to 25 as we wrap this up. And then he said to them a third time, Why? What evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him, and therefore I will chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priest prevailed. They wanted a Jesus of their own making. They didn't want the sinless Lamb of God. They were insistent. And so Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested, not as Pilate found in the law, but as they requested, as the people requested a Jesus of their own making, they got a Jesus of their own making. They got what they asked for. They got a political Jesus Barabbas. And he released him, the one that they requested, for who rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Wow. Church, at about this moment in time, you ought to be thankful for the grace of God. Because as much as we'd like to isolate this to the Jewish people or to the Romans, the fact of the matter is you were in the crowd. You have previously been, if you have not yet received the Lord, you might still be today crying out for a Jesus of your own making. But thanks be unto God, there is one Savior and one Lord, the man, Christ Jesus. Amen? There is only one name under heaven whereby men must be saved. It is at the name of Jesus, not Jesus Barabbas, not the one of our own making, Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God. He is the only name that can save. You see, this whole scene shows us how mockers can win. It shows us the crowd in each one of us. It shows us the crowd in each one of us. We're all capable of joining this rabble-rousing mob. You see this incredible prophetic window into our own souls that we find in Isaiah 53. Because all we like sheep have gone astray, church. Now maybe you weren't in the crowd condemning Jesus. I'm pretty sure none of you are that old. But in a way, every one of you was in the crowd condemning Jesus. When you heard the truth of the gospel and said, well, you know, I got other things to do right now. And I kind of want a Jesus of my own making that will let me live my life the way I want to live it. I want to keep my sin and have salvation too. It doesn't work that way. Unless you be born again, you'll not see the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. He said, he that believes in me, though he will die, 
yet he shall live. For I am the resurrection and the life, and he who lives and believes in me, in that sense, will never die. We do not get to make our own Jesus. We have to trust in the one who came and gave his life for us. It's interesting, a little tiny piece of information found in Matthew's gospel in chapter 27 makes this all the more scary for some of us. In chapter 27, verse 14, Pilate's wife actually said, have nothing to do with this man, for he is just. Maybe someone's watching online. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you've thought, like all of these people, Pilate went home to his wife. Barabbas went back to his den of murderers. Got to do his own thing. Caiaphas and those with him, his cronies, hurried off to enjoy the sufferings. Finally, we got him. That'll teach him to call us a brood of vipers. And Jesus, the innocent Savior, went to the cross. We were worshiping this morning. Have you thought for a second about what we were singing? Think about it. Jesus went to the cross to give his life a ransom. He was completely innocent. The declaration of the Apostle Paul 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for he made him who knew no sin. The Bible declares Jesus was sinless. To become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through him. It's the only way. It's the only way. Jesus was innocent. The church found him innocent. The Romans found him innocent. No human being will ever find guilt in Jesus. The only question becomes, have you believed in him? Because he paid the price for your sin. And there's no one else who can do it. Part of the beauty of these passages is the minute detail with which we understand what God was sharing with us. My son was innocent when he died on that cross. Every charge against him, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. The hammer hits the gong each time, not guilty. Jesus, who was guiltless, died for me because I am guilty. And I pray that that's why you worship him. Because you're guilty too. 
just as Pilate was, just as Herod was, just as Annas and Caiaphas and the crowd was guilty, so we all like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of every last one of us. These trials only prove one thing. I'm guilty. Jesus is innocent. The guiltless died for the guilty. Unbelievably wonderful news for the guilty one. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. If you're here this morning, you may be watching online or perhaps you'll watch this later on our YouTube channel or some online source and you want to know Jesus, all you need to do is confess that you're a sinner and invite him to save you. You can make that profession of faith today either in the prayer room or in the quiet of your own heart. And we encourage you to do so. Without him, no man sees heaven. But if you know him, your destination when you take your last breath is secure because Jesus, the guiltless, died for you, the guilty. And if you'll believe in him, you'll be saved. Father, we thank you for that truth. The gospel is implicitly simple. It's not complex for a reason. We're foolish, Lord, and we get confused. And so you made the gospel simple so that we can simply believe and be saved. And I pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, that right now, Jesus, they would confess their sin and invite you to take over control of their life, to believe in who you are and what you did, and that through you, they will be saved. Lord, we thank you for that truth in each of our lives. And we pray that we would walk worthy of the calling wherein you have called us. Lord, keep us from being engaged in foolish and hurtful things. Help us to be busy about our Father's business in these last days. Help us to preach the gospel and live gospel lives. Help us to be what you've called us to be. To be salt. To be light. To be illuminating the good news until you come. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.